Okay, Lee, we're live. Mate, firstly, thank you very much for doing this. It is a genuine honor to have you on the podcast. I was lucky enough to hear you speak at Sydney Uni, what, have been a month ago, month or so ago now, just before Christmas. And I, I, I had more questions, like any of these conversations, I, th- I think that the sign to me of a good discussion is some some something where you walk away where you actually have more questions. So having the opportunity to sit down with you is something I really appreciate. So firstly, mate, how are you? Where are you? And um, how, you, how are you going on this beautiful day? Thanks, Duncan, um, for inviting me. And I've been looking forward to speak to you about leadership and high-performance teams. And I'm well. Of course, we just started 2024 after you know, two or three uh, pretty challenging years. And so I'm, I'm hopeful and um, energised by... Uh, by what's to come this year and 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 onwards. I'm I'm currently in Sydney. I, I live up in Gordon um, on this very broody Sydney, almost subtropical day. But no, things are going well. Mate, that's awesome. I actually wanted to start with a quote on your email, and it goes: "A society grows great when men plant trees in whose shade they will never sit." What does that quote mean to you? Well, I think it's important to really reflect uh, on not so much your uh, personal legacy, um, but more importantly about the things that you do today, the effect they'll have on the future, including not just your own offspring and generations, but Australia and also globally. And I think that really, um, well, it certainly inspires me. It also focuses me as well in terms of how, you know, I, I may influence uh, future generations. Mate, that's a perfect answer. I wanted to go talk to you a little bit about high performance. Now, something that I see being thrown around, quite it's a term that's thrown around quite loosely in some instances. In your career, you've been responsible for a genuine high performance environment and still are. What does the term high performance mean to you? Well, Duncan, if I just take you back... Um... I think it's important for individuals and teams to have a you know a purpose, a purpose statement. And I, I reflect now when I made my decision as set at a, as a 17-year-old to join the Defence Force and join the Navy in, in Melbourne in, in 1986. What was my purpose? What was my purpose statement, my reason? And the three reasons that still uh, I guess drive me today was one, I wanted to serve, serve my country, but serve full stop. Secondly, um, it was escapism. Um, it was you know, escaping from the suburbs of Melbourne and the adventure of, of, of seeing the world and being part of the Defence Force and getting a whole new group of mates. But the third one, which really has stuck with me, is, was to join a high-performing team. And I, and I knew that from early in my age, uh, early uh, on, you know, as I you know, in, my, in my teenage years, I liked being part of uh, high-performing sporting teams, academic teams, school teams, and I was starting to know what that felt like. So I wanted to continue. Now, for me, when I talk about high-performance teams, I usually use five criteria. I'm going to add a sixth, and I'll tell you why I add the sixth. For me, a high-performing team really has five critical components. One is a higher purpose or a common purpose that everyone understands. Secondly, a high level of trust. And I'll come back to trust, I'm sure, as we talk. The third is a high level of communication internally, externally, and in many different ways. Fourth one, which is often goes or um, goes wrong, is actually role clarity. 
And the fifth one is having really good uh, processes, which are then turned into, which are enacted on as principles. So if I repeat those, common purpose, high purpose, high level of trust, high level of communication, role clarity, and then good processes, which are turned into principles. The sixth one I will add, and the reason I do that is because I've just completed the Chief of Defence Force Inclusive Leadership Review, which was quite a lengthy um, uh, review into you know, leadership full stop in the Australian Defence Force, especially on small teams and our team of teams concept. And I think the sixth one I'd add with high performance teams is that they really know each other. They know each other really well as individuals and uh, collectively, for better or for worse. The reason why I've focused on that one, because um, my discovery during this review is that there's bad leadership, there's good leadership, there's toxic leadership, but there's also absent leadership. There's leaders who actually don't know their people. And if they don't know your people, you you are not going to get the best performance out of them, not, not from, from a country mile. I, I want to start purpose. Purpose is something that I see as incredibly important for not only individuals but anyone that's a part of a team. How how do you as a leader get buy-in from the collective for the common purpose? Because as an individual within a team, you have your own purpose and your own ambitions, and I could imagine that that's a very normal thing. But you've also got to take into account the higher purpose of the organization or the team and ultimately, if we're all reaching that higher purpose, it's going to help the individual as well. How do leaders, how as a leader, do we get buy-in and spread that higher purpose? Yeah, thanks, Duncan. And I think um, sequentially, of course, it's a higher purpose before it's a common purpose. You've got to make sure that people actually understand yep. this higher purpose. What, what, yeah, what, what, what is your headmark? You know, um, and it's not just a thing, such as winning a championship or not necessarily being, I always tell people, you don't necessarily have to be the best team. You have to be the best team you can be. And you'll know if you're not the best team, but that could be your higher purpose, you know, that challenge. But then I think also your higher purpose is how will, you know, how you will act to achieve that purpose and how it will make you feel. I think that's your kind of your higher purpose. Then you get the buy-in. You actually, you talk to, you know, your, your team, you, you talk to, you know, your, your leadership, you, you talk to individuals. So I make sure that language is equating exactly the same. And language is really important. You know, one word can mean something so different to somebody else. So you actually make sure that language is aligned. And once you've done that, you know, whichever way you need to do it, you either shout it out loud, you either talk about it as a team, you either write it down, you either commit people by you know, a signature on a paper, whatever works best. But once you have that high purpose, then it becomes a common purpose and you ensure that every opportunity that it's appropriate, you point to that high purpose, common purpose and remind yourself, remind the team. And in particular, if things aren't going well, you actually you, know, you bring it out and you repeat it and you repeat it often. How important is it to, to aim high in terms of having that higher purpose? I, I look at my own sporting career as an example. I, I would not work that hard for myself, but if there was a common or a higher purpose that I really believed in, I'd go over and above to, to, to try and attain the higher purpose. And, and it's something that I've been exploring a little bit in my own life in terms of setting setting your targets high for the people around you to hopefully drive them to perform to the level that they're capable of or overperform in some instances. Is, is it important to aim high? 
Absolutely. Always set stretch targets. Don't don't set targets you know you can achieve. Um, I've just come from working with Canberra for the last, uh, you know, on and off the last 10 years. That's, you know, unfortunately in a bureaucratic city like Canberra, and, and there's lots of good things, there's, but a lot of the targets that are set down there are easy to achieve and then people celebrate those easy targets. You need to be in the business of stretch targets. And stretch targets, sometimes you don't achieve them. In fact, if you're achieving about 60%, 70% of your stretch target, it's about right in the you know, as you reflect year on year. What about building trust? Building trust within the people within your organization. I, I've just watched the documentary on the Chicago Bulls. It's on Netflix. And, mm. it, and it, to me, it's a good example of a team that may have not liked each other very much. They didn't appear to be very social. But when it came to the game, they appeared to trust each other uh, implicitly. How, how can we build trust within a new group, a new organization, amongst people with varying abilities and varying backgrounds? Look, I, I will um, go back to my uh, military career during our conversation, Duncan, but it's, it goes without saying that trust um, is the critical element of a high-performing team. You know each other well, you know each other's abilities, and you know you've got each other's backs. And, and you know, um, say in the military, not every day is a good day. There's lots, lots of good weeks, lots of good months, but you actually need to actually understand on those bad days you can have people, you know, around you that you actually uh, can, you know, you can share those bad days. You can actually, and also will, you know, allow you some flexing as well. Um, and you've got to really trust that people have got your uh, your back. With the military, we we really focus on because the environment is inherently dangerous. It's we try and make it as safe as we can, but the reality is every day it's dangerous. So you have to really trust the people around you. So we do a lot of exercising. Um, when I say just uh, simulating different kinds of events to really ensure that there's a, a full trusting environment. So that's that's actually practicing it. Of course, trust is also integrity. Uh, having uh, absolute, you know, that value of integrity at the forefront. Um, I always remind myself and I remind others, always, always tell the truth um, because it's the easiest thing to remember. The other thing that stood out to me from the, the six points at the start is getting to know the people within your organisation or having uh, the term that they use in sport at the moment is cohesion. It's the group coming together off the field to to hopefully drive higher performance. How important is it as a leader to get to know the people within our organizations or our teams and, and to understand what makes them tick, what their individual purpose or their individual goals are? How important is that? Well, I'll go back to um, uh, early in my career. When when you join the Navy and you go through the military academy, it's a 17-year-old, in my case, ad for the Australian Defence Force Academy. Uh, at, the, um, at the age of 20, you actually then go on board a warship as what's called a midshipman. And you may be a junior officer and you're, you know, you're about to be promoted to the rank of sub-lieutenant and, 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 um, and lead men and women. But you actually, for the first six months of my career, I actually lived with the sailors. I lived in the, what's called the mess decks or the midships. And you'd have 40 or 50 sailors, um, not 20-year-olds, some were, but some were 30, 40, 50-year-olds, some are 30-year veterans of the Navy. And the reason why the midship and the junior officers actually live with the sailors for that first four or five months is because you actually get to understand the men 
men and women you're about to lead and you're about to serve with. And also they are in, um, they're sharing their knowledge, their experience, they're teaching you. They're also judging you. They're also working out, is this the kind of person we really want to be our officer and want to, us to lead? So, and it's a terrific experience. I could tell some funny stories about, you know, being a snotty-nosed 20-year-old just out of university, being with some really hard Australians of many, many different backgrounds. And, and my, uh, my allocated... Um, uh, what they call Sea Daddy. I'm not sure if you could probably call it that in the, the 21st century. It was called Slugger, and Slugger was uh, you know, a heavy smoker. He used to smoke his mess deck, and and he was hard on me. But now I realise he was hard on me because he cared. He actually wanted me to be the best leader possible. And it wasn't Slugger. It was another sailor, Jack Daniels, who probably gave me one of the most important lessons in leadership. And being yourself and advice. And that was, um, it was actually, I think it was on the 31st of December 1919. And um, I was about to be promoted to sub-lieutenant and leave the mess deck for sailors and go up to the officer's mess. And he said to me, you know, mid, you know, midshipman or lead, tomorrow I'm going to call you sir, you're going to be an officer. And in a very Australian way, um, I want to give you one bit of advice. We'll give you a hard time for being the officer. We'll give you a hard time for being the leader. We'll give you a hard time for being the coach. But the moment you stop being a leader is when we'll really give you a hard time. Now get out of here. And essentially that was it. That was pushing me out after living for three or four months and really getting to know those people. That's how I felt you know, um, in terms of I was then ready. But I also felt that I had trust, not just with the men and women that I was about to leave and serve with, but I also had more trust in myself. Can you talk about the trust in yourself part of that? I, I think having confidence as a leader in your own abilities is very important. How how did how did that experience help you build trust in yourself? Well, I think all of us at some stage have imposter syndrome uh, or have voices in our own heads, uh, or we. You know, the worst thing you can do is certainly you'll be second guessed by others, but if you start second guessing yourself, then it, you know, it can be all over, and you don't have time to do that. Look, I think um, uh, realising that life, leadership and all the things, you know, that that go with that is a journey and you get better at it every single day. Sure, not every day is a good day, but you actually do get better at it every single day and you start to trust your own judgment, trust your own things you're saying, or you start to be more reflective and more honest in terms of when you look in the mirror about, you know, where you're at and, 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 and you know, whether... Yeah, at a point of time you made a good decision or not or how potentially you could have uh, done it differently and you start to trust yourself. And, I, and I'll give you an example again, you know, with the Navy in terms of imposter syndrome and trust. Not sure, it was actually during that period, during as a midshipman, I, I was um, on the bridge of a warship and it was in the middle of the night. It was on HMAS Perth, my uh, first warship, and, and the captain was Captain Chris Oxenbold, who I still stay in touch with, and he, be, he became a rear admiral as well. And, and things were all going to custard in the Malacca Strait on this big warship, and we were driving through it at speed at three o'clock in the morning. I was a junior officer uh, on the bridge. There's a couple more senior officers and sailors around. And, and what you do is, as you're driving through, there's lots of lights and lots of confusion, and you've really got to, you know, be very, uh, be very honest with yourself about whether you can deal with the situation or do you need others now to assist you. And that's a really important decision. It's not a, you know, a, an admittance of failure. In fact, in this case the captain had to be called to the bridge. And that's not uncommon at three o'clock in the morning. And no captain thanks you for letting him sleep peacefully. 
captain actually wants you to call him, even though they may initially go, what's up now? They'll come to the bridge and, of course, assist you. And I remember as the captain Chris Oxford came to the bridge, the bridge parted. Uh, he went to the uh, front of the bridge window, grabbed his binoculars and looked out into the Malacca Strait. And I remember the air of calm and control. All of a sudden, our captain was on the bridge. He was our leader. Uh, everyone's looking at the back of his head. He said a few things and the tempo just, uh, and the tone just changed. You know, he sat down and people, basically he said nothing then. No, good lesson for me as well. The less you say as a leader, things happen around you, the better. That's, so that was a tone he set. Fast forward about 15 years later, I was at sea, not shortly after taking my first major command on a, on a frigate, uh, a guided missile frigate, HMAS Parramatta, and it was a similar situation. It wasn't far from Singapore. And again, I was called to the bridge three o'clock in the morning. It was not going well. Things seemed to be going. I got called by the junior officer. The bridge parted, it separated. You know, I grabbed my binoculars. I went to the bridge window. And as I looked out, I went, what the hell am I going to do now? And But what actually happened is I started saying and doing things. I st and I'm not sure where it came from. It just came out and it was good. And I sat down and said, anything. and all of a sudden the, the bridge, just like Captain Chris Oxenbold 15 years beforehand, all that experience, all that kind of investment in me and investment in myself and trust in myself came out in that moment. And it did. And, I, and again, I sat down and realised the less I say now, the better. Things are just going to happen around me. And it did. I remember meeting... Well, now, you know, Rear Admiral Chris Oxenbold, and I regularly catch up with him in Hobart after the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race. And I said, this really inspired me when you said all those words. And he said, you know, Lee, I was the same as you. I didn't know what I was doing for a moment, but it just came out of me for that moment of time. So I think that would be an example of trust, experience, imposter syndrome. You actually do have it in you. And at those critical moments, it will come out and you will lead well and you will actually drive a high-performance team. How important is preparation? It's 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 a broad question. Mm. Obviously, in 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 the environment that you've been in, I'd say it's integral, inter integral or, or vitally important to prepare guys for multiple situations. How how, do, how does the how does the Navy do that? Is there a process to prepare guys for all sorts of different situations? And is it even possible to prepare for every single situation? So first of all, that question, no, you've, um, you know, you, you've always got to assume um, uh, the situational change. And I often tell people, you've got to be very careful of, uh, in terms of uh, over-situating. You've got to appreciate the situation as it is, not situate the appreciation. Because if you over-plan or overthink it, you try and drive it to the way you wanted it to be yeah. versus the way it is, you know. And so tell people, you know, risks are, uh, are often realised. You wouldn't identify a risk if you didn't think it could be realised. And when it's realised, you don't go, what do I do now? You do the little things you say you would do once that risk was realised because yeah. now it's an issue that you've got to manage. And people often start again, start going to panic or chaos, but you actually should be doing the things that you plan and prepared for. The core question, though, the defence source is all about planning, rehearsing and and preparation because our core job is defence and our core job is, you know, is is essentially is you know kinetic and non-kinetic violent action, and um, it, it only you know we that's the, and we very rarely get to do that for real, and you don't want to because you know you're, by having a defence source it's a deterrent fact. So you have to re rehearse, you have to stim uh, simulate, you have to plan. At the higher level, um, we have our what's called our joint operations command, and it's probably you know a thousand people 
um, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, different government agencies based in a place called Bungendore just outside of Canberra, that whole um, uh, building an organisation is a planning organisation. It plans, it plans, it rehearses, it plans, rehearses, it tests, it red teams, it, you know, every single scenario. And some, that's that's what it does the whole time. And every area that the Defence Force may be involved in, whether it be aircraft operations, army operations, submarine operations, warship operations, assistance to the civil community, you know, a, a coup in the region, what you know, whatever, or, uh, you know, supporting a, a bushfire, flood response, every single scenario we rehearse and plan. And how more, regularly, so, sorry, sorry to cut, cut in there, Lee, how regularly would you go and rehearse those situations? Because you can't touch on everything all the time. I'd imagine, yeah. but you'd still want to have, if there is a bushfire situation that you have to go in and help, that's still got to be practiced. And, and is it something that you practice on a calendar or a clock or today guys were doing this? Like how is that process managed? So I think it depends on the level, this kind of strategic level where you've got big government decisions. It's kind of would be a regular, maybe an annual event. You know, some based on risk, so this is more, more likely, so you'd be practicing that event more often. The operational level, it may be, you know, you know, in say in the Navy's case, two or three warships may be you know, practicing a scenario every month. At the more tactical level, at the team level, sometimes you're practicing these scenarios daily. An example would be, um, I'll come back to Special Forces, Air Force, um, and then maybe Navy more generally, but the biggest uh, concern for a Navy ship day-to-day -day is actually a fire on board. It really is a scenario that we think about all the time because you're in the middle of the ocean, um, and, of course, if you have a fire on board, you potentially, this big warship, you lose electricity, so you lose power, you have smoke will go through the ship, you have people sleeping at the bottom, you, you know, you can lose systems, you can lose your propulsion, you can lose, you know, people, you know, you know could be seriously injured or there could be a fatality. So, and that's a scenario that can happen every day, potentially. That's a risk because we've got explosives on board, fuel, you know, the nature of that thing. So we have to rehearse that every day. Every single day we have to rehearse as a, and it's actually not only is it a practical scenario to make sure we can deal with an incident such as a fire or loss of power or um, or, uh, or simulating, you know, an, uh, an enemy missile hitting us. It also proves the um, the communic all those high power things, the, um, the common purpose to deal with the incident, the trust in each other, you know, with the ship being, and we actually make the ship completely black, a black like you've never seen, like, you know, you can't even, you open your eye, you're closing your eyelids, you can see more than you can actually count outwards, you know, and simulating smoke. You've got to really trust each other. You've got to be able to really communicate. You've got to have really absolute role clarity, and you've got to have actually practice processes and principles. We have to practice that every single day, just like your rugby drills. Yeah. We practice those drills, and we know the weakness, and sometimes we have to live with weaknesses too. And we know when somebody's having a bad day, and we are ruthless in our self-assessment. If we don't think we've made the grade, you know, three minutes to get to the fire, four minutes to restore power, five minutes to do that, we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. It's just the way. And I'll come back to a timing example. Now, with Special Forces, uh, Navy, Air Force, the number of rehearsals and plans for critical incidents like that or, or say that Special Forces have got a scenario where they're rescuing hostages or the Air Force got a scenario where it's actually bombing a very sensitive area where there's potential collateral damage to civilians, the amount of planning, accuracy, rehearsal, and to be frank, the amount of uh, horoscopes that are read if you're not doing it right, because you have to, you have no, you can't be uh, Mr. and Mrs. Nice. You've actually got to be really, really frank 
if you're not performing at the level you need to. Just just to simplify that for the sports coaches listening, if for us in, in a sporting context, you would look, if you were going to apply the same principles, you would look at an event that would occur the most often and those events you would practice regularly or yes. the ones with a high degree of, of danger or, or, or in a sporting context, the things that are going to make you successful. You practice that regularly and we've got to be ruthless ruthless if we don't get to the standards that we held ourselves accountable to and constantly reviewing our systems and processes so that we know we're on the right track. Is, is that is that not, that's obviously a complete oversimplification? Is Absolutely. That I think the things that you need to practice continuously and if you need to every day is the things that have the highest consequence if it goes wrong. You've got to practice it and you've got to do it and you've got to be ruthless. You can't just wish that away. You know, um, these are if these risks are realised, you can't then be looking at each other and say, start the game again. You know, yeah. stop the game. You've actually got to deal with a situation and it's and it can, you know, it can um deviate significantly from where you think it was, you know, started. You know, you, so you've got to got you so you've got to rehearse it and practice it and be honest about the scenario you think it's gonna be. Yeah. And then, you know, every now and again, you're going to make it different. You're going to make it really different. You know, an example would be I might be the captain of the ship and I might have a really good person who takes charge of a small group fighting the fire. And we might be there. There's 15 of us who are critical in actually dealing with it. Every now and again, you take out the captain. So you're taking out the head. So now the next person got it. And you've got to take the best person to fight the fire, take him out. He, yeah, he or yeah. she's died in the incident and see how the rest of the team perform. It is really critical. Now, again, Special forces will do that all the time. You know, they will take out. And special forces talk about, um, uh, as a term they use, and I'll, I'll, I'll look for it right now, I think it's called team ability. Team ability is a really good form. It means you can be a leader, follower, leader, follower, leader, follower. It's really, really important. One moment you're a leader, next minute you're a follower. And you, you need to be able to seamlessly go between the two very, very quickly. You could be the leader jumping out of the plane, you need to be the follower on the ground. You need to be leader when you go get the hostage. You need to be the follower when you get, et cetera. And the ability to move really quickly. Same with the Navy. And in fact, even though we have ranked, you know, the number of times that I've been in an incident where a leading seaman, like a corporal, has said, I'm now in charge. And the officer around said, you're in charge for the next five, 10 minutes. Absolutely. That innate ability to be adaptable and flexible. But one comment I will say, though, um, with rugby, and your audience may already know this, the, the, the defence force love playing rugby. And the reason why we love playing rugby, men and women, is because it's rankless. You may be an officer during the day, but that afternoon when you play rugby, it's rankless. You know, And you find leadership on the rugby field. A number of times I've played in, uh, say, Navy or defence force rugby teams, not just here in Australia, but, say, overseas, and the captain isn't the officer because he's the officer. It's actually the best leader on the rugby field, and it could be a leading seaman or a corporal or it could be a petty officer. That's really, really important. And then, of course, in the bar, you'll drink, it's rankless. Next day, it's back to the hierarchy that exists on board the warship or in the unit. Matt, I have so many questions I want to ask you, but I'm going to stay on track. How is failure viewed in the armed forces? Obviously, it has a higher consequences than in a sporting environment or maybe a business environment. What's the process like when dealing with failure? How is it viewed and how how is there a process to view what's happened as a learning experience to hopefully not happen again? 
So um, the cost of success in any business, but in particular um, in military, includes failure, and we 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 plan for it. We actually know that. Um, we said we don't oversituate it. We actually do understand that you know uh, not everything is going to go right, and of course, failure for us can mean you know, catastrophic circumstances. It can mean fatalities. So um, so we take the business of failure very very seriously. And it's tried to say, like, of course, you know, and you you know, you become stronger because of failure. And there's no doubt about it. And and uh, um, yeah, we can be, um, yeah, you said this is you know being very honest with yourself. We've all had significant failures individually. We've all had to live with some failures. We all have you know benefit of hindsight, etc. As well. But it is actually a natural part of you know the any kind of business and any kind of. Uh, um uh leadership um one one thing in terms of uh what the defense force um in particular or militaries are is after action reviews doing them immediately and being really ruthlessly uh frank with those as well especially with things that haven't gone right um you know i i an example would be a fighter pilot, and I've seen this. I've I've been up. I'm not a fighter pilot, but I've got good mates who are you know flying fighter jets, F-18 Hornets, and and actually having been up with them and seeing the whole process of their uh, rigorous process of preparation and and safety and mission and outcomes and everything that goes into getting that aircraft, and that pilot, and all the systems and and um and munitions uh, into the air. And then when they land, you know, and, and they may have you know done a mission for an hour, an hour and a half, and it's exhausting, absolutely exhausting. And and it doesn't matter how good, you know, I might have thought it was or anyone else, the first thing they do when they land is write a report about that mission. And most of it is actually self-criticism, positive yeah. self-criticism. They really take each other apart. I've seen that with special forces. I've seen that with Navy after, say, a very, you know, it's, um, uh, very challenging, say, navigation or missile firing exercise, really is important to actually to be um, really transparent and honest about what didn't go right. So, so in terms of actually understanding what failed or you know whether it's systemic, individual, or the environment, you really have to very clearly articulate. And of course, it's not lessons then learned. People say they you write out your lessons learned. Well, they're not learned until you've actually learned. The lessons identified. You then had to a process to actually later on to say we've actually now learnt those lessons because often lessons identified are repeated in four or five reports. Now that's more of the tactical level. At the high level, failure, you know, it's you know risks are realised. You know people make mistakes. Um, I think understanding why those uh, uh, understanding that you've got to be tolerant of, of failure and understanding why you did fail and doing that as quickly as possible that's the critical node. Is it important to look at what you did well? Absolutely. Yeah, as long as you're not uh, sugarcoating what you didn't do well. Um, absolutely. I think, you know, and, and what's what's that repeatable thing that you're doing well and, um, and acknowledge it. And you should play to your strengths too. I mean, sometimes we do at times um, uh, play to our weaknesses or things that aren't going well versus sometimes they can be countered by the things you're doing really well. And you actually have to live with some of the things that you know aren't doing aren't, you know from a system perspective or just because there's a natural weakness in, in your system absolutely you have to recognize your strength and also strengths how do you actually then um exploit them or if they are strengths and you don't need to keep practicing or keep you know going back and making yourself feeling happy and clappy because you keep going going well at that kind of area don't you know focus on some other kind of area i've seen that too that 
sometimes people are doing really well in a certain area and they keep repeating it because it makes them feel good. Yeah. That's probably not a good way to go. You've actually got to focus on what's going to be uh, highest contribution and highest return on investment to your aim. Yeah, would that come back to – I've seen that all the time as well in a sporting yeah. context. Is that is that a matter of a leader, a coach, a trainer, you know, the boss going to the team and going, look, really need to have a little bit more self-awareness about what we're doing well, what we could do better, and then driving that? Or is it something that is driven within an organization through the people on the ground? Yeah, look, I, I think it's very hard as an individual to actually correct that behavior. I think as a team, you have to correct it. And as a leader, I mean, that's really what a coach and manager does. You know, they are, they're orchestrating. They're seeing which part of the orchestra you know, is performing really well and they have to pay less attention on that and which areas they either, you know, need to really intervene or or challenge or work through to, to perform better. I mean, leadership is orchestrating and this this orchestra that you've got, you've got to uh, oversee it in that regard. Otherwise, you'll just keep, you know, going to the part that yeah, makes you feel good, makes everyone feels good, but doesn't really need the attention. Are leaders born or can they be made? I, I, definitely they can be made, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there is an element of, um, you know, you are fortunate and, you know, the nation you're born, you know, nation you're born in, the, you know, perhaps the, um, you know, some of, you know, genetics, et cetera, as well. There's no doubt about that, you know. Uh, um, but the reality is, um, yeah, your, your your environment, your value system, the culture that you grow up, you know, as a, as a child through your schooling, and then the um, you know the, the kind of person you are by you know and I'm I'm not some performance psychologist but by certain kind of ages in your career you know you really are uh, your the, the shoots of actually your potential as a leader are starting to emerge and certainly from my perspective that's you know um, you're seeing good leaders you know by mid teens there's no doubt about that you're seeing good leaders by twenty but the other thing I would say though is um uh, I went through the Australian Defence Academy. Um, between the ages of 17 and 20. And some people came out of that as as, as they are leaders and potential and will lead the defence force. Others yeah. didn't. Some of those that didn't, though, 20, 30 years later, they're not, it's not the tortoise and the hare, but maybe it is. They actually have now put, turned out to be the best leaders of all. You know, they've, just, they've maintained who they were, their value system, their, their uh, purpose statement, et cetera. So some of those leaders who probably didn't stand out 30 years ago, I actually are now standing out. So, so yeah. Is that, just, think, a, is that um, just a matter of time, do you think, Lee? I think for them it was a matter of time. I think it was always the kind of person they were, that they, um, you know, they, they were approaching uh, their leadership journey and, you know, um, as a marathon rather than a sprint. I've seen a few people sprint as well, you know, um, and uh, by the side, either, you know, uh, burn out or, uh, or, or not be adaptable enough and, and keep, you know, you know, what got them there, you know, sometimes what got, gets you here doesn't actually get you to the next step, you know, in different state phases of leadership and, and, and management as well. I mean, you, I mean, rugby is probably a good example as well. There are some amazing coaches who would love to have played for Australia, who would love to have been, you know, great captain Australia and been great. But they didn't. They weren't, sadly, they weren't good enough. And that's the reality. That's life. You know, we can't all, you know, can't all be in the, uh, you know, World Cup for our rugby winning team. But then they evolved. They realised what they were good at was either managing, coaching, etc. And the number of you know great coaches that tell you, yeah, sure, I'd love to have actually picked up a World Cup or been part of or been part of a Waratahs team or a Premier League team, etc. As well. But I knew that you know I had a different direction to go, and here I am coaching, and I'm you know coaching you know elite sportsmen. 
What is commonly misunderstood about leadership or good leadership? Yeah, look, well, first of all, I think um, um, there's four components of leadership um, and it's really, really important to be a good leader. You have to be a leader, you have to be a manager, you have to be a mentor and you have to be a follower. You have to be all four of those things. Otherwise, you're just... um, Everyone best be focused on making great speeches and leading from the front, and you know, uh, versus actually the, the holistic approach you need to take to leadership. Now, I say leadership and management because uh, yeah, you, you've still got to manage yourself, and you've got to manage people around you too. You can't just simply lead and tell people and and be an example. You've actually got to manage the situation. And even in the defence force, see, we produce very good leaders in the defence force. We don't always produce good core managers, and I think that's that's got to be really really balanced. And there's quite a difference between the two. That said, just because you're a good manager, you certainly are not going to be a good leader. You, know, you actually, that's that's a core. Third thing is mentoring. Obviously, you've got to be a great example. You've got to be preparing. You know, you, you asked about my quiet about you know, um, sitting under you know, trees whose shade you know you never sit on. You know, that really should aspire us all. You know, people remember you not just for what you achieved, but how you achieved it and how you set up the next generation to lead. And the fourth one is followership, teaching people how to follow how to be active in terms of giving their view, how to be uh, follow in terms of actually following the direction, the orders, you know, and also um, you said every leader has to show show themselves how they are loyal and be a follower as well. So I think it's, I, I think that the misunderstanding with leadership is that it's just about, you know, you're, a, you're this uh, strong male, female in the front, giving directions, having the strategic nows and everyone will just follow you. There's a lot of hard work. And it's constant, you know, and you need to be adapting the whole time. Do you, yeah, do you now, part of leadership, I think, which is actually uh, not well understood is is uh, self-awareness. Um, that's the biggest. Uh, uh, there's people actually who actually uh, perceive themselves as being good leaders and may get generally good results, um, but their self-awareness is pretty poor at times. Can you train self-awareness? Um, I think it, absolutely. It actually doesn't come natural to a lot of people. Uh, That's why you really, <laughs> it really doesn't. And, um, and for us, by the way, none of us necessarily like um, three sixty degree reporting or looking in the mirror. Or, as I said, you know, as I tell people that I mentioned about integrity and truth, I always say the easiest thing to remember is the truth because you know, and uh, the easiest thing you know to remember when you're looking in the mirror is actually you know is is actually what really happened and how you really felt, not trying to kind of make it up, you know, to make it sound better or going for the best version of yourself. When we're um, when you're on a warship as a captain, um, you actually uh, have a warrant officer um, on board the ship, and a warrant officer is the most, you know, um, senior kind of non-officer. And that warrant officer is an example to all the sailors, you know, provides a whole lot of, you know, very experienced advice. He or she is also who tells the captain um, how things are really going. And I always tell people, you know, as a captain, everyone laughs at your jokes, even though you're not funny. Uh, everyone tells you you're communicating well, and sometimes you're not. Everyone tells you it's all going well, and sometimes it's not. It's a warrant officer who says, and pardon my language, just says, no, what you said today you know, uh, didn't come across that way. You're actually not funny, sir. <laughs> or, or um, you know, things actually, they were telling you this, that, and the other, but, you know, that's actually not how it is. Or your behaviour today, sir, wasn't actually what I thought was the best in those circumstances. You know, you, uh, you know, you were 
you, you were just ahead of us all versus actually with us today. So I think sometimes you need trusted confidence and, and even leaders do as well, full stop. So as a coach, it's not about having a spy in the camp, far from it. But it's actually about two or three people in the team. You know, if you privately chat to them and saying, how's it really going? They're going to give it to you in the way that you actually need to receive it. Not necessarily how you like to receive it, but you actually need to receive it. Captain Warship, I'd do that. I'd, I'd have two or three officers who are my confidence. But that's confidence not only because they're the two or three that I probably could go have a beer and let my hair down and I'm not this, yes, you know, this act of command. But I also had three or four sailors. I knew I could go walk around the ship and just say, this happened today. I did this. Do you reckon that was the right thing to do? And actually, they would actually very quietly and confidentially give me uh, feedback and advice as well. So, I, yeah, and and it did surprise me sometimes um, how 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 miss uh, how I'd misperceived exactly what I uh, how I'd actually was 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 being perceived. I, I want to go back to the the following part of leadership. I think that's really interesting, and it's something that I I probably haven't heard before. Is, is it quite challenging for leaders to learn the following side of leading? Or do some people do it quite naturally? Well, when I left uh, full-time military a couple of years ago, and of course I'm you know, kind of part-time military now, but now in the kind of corporate commercial world, I always tell a lot of the corporate leaders, and sometimes I will speak to them about leadership, I say, gee, you produce good leaders, but you produce terrible followers, <laughs> you know, because yeah. uh, you're such a bad example, you know, Um so I think followership's probably three parts. One is actually being an example of a follower, saying to people, I want you to follow me and I want you to see how I behave in either my boss in the organisation or, or other parts of my life, that I'm actually a good example as a follower, really important. Because if I ask you to follow, I want you to see me as a follower. Yeah. The second is inclusivity, including everyone as a follower. You know, but basically everyone feels you know, as part of the team even though they're following, that they actually have a chance to actually voice their views at the right and appropriate time. So, so that's you know. That. And then the third thing is a follower is knowing when it's time to actually simply follow. That is, uh, you know, I tell people we'd be in a room, say, right, everyone have a view now. It's your chance. I need to hear. You. I know you've. I know you've been talking about this outside the room. You now need to give it here or leave it, because as soon as we finish here, when it goes through that door, I'm the leader, and we, you're going to follow me. And that's it. No last-minute um, hand grenades, no rear attacks, no kind of toxic discussions later on. You know, you've got your chance now to be a follower, and this is it. And this is a real chance. And not some, I'm just going to listen to you because I have to. I'm going to listen to you because you actually probably have something really meaningful to say, and it may actually really significantly shift the way that I'm actually about to direct. So I think they're the important parts of our followership. So interesting. I think it's really important that people have a good understanding of that. Mate, I could talk to you for hours. i got one more question and then a couple of rapid-fire questions, mate, and I'll get you out of here. I feel like this could be a five-hour podcast, maybe one day down the track. What does culture look like? What does a good culture look like? It seems to be one of these words, probably similar to high performance, that everyone has a different definition of. What does it look like to you? Well, well, first of all, um, uh, before I talk about what it looks like, what it feels like, you know, yeah. it's interesting. Um, and I go back to say a, a warship, but not just a warship, a work environment, a rugby team. Um, I, I had a role that's called commander of sea training. And sea, it's a kind of a privileged position where you would actually be the kind of check captain or the check of ships to make sure that 
the culture was right, the performance was right, etc. And, and I was checked out, and then I had the opportunity with a team to go on board. But I would always tell people, you can walk on board, say, a warship or into an environment, and within five, ten minutes of walking around, you can already sense that the culture is right. The way people welcome you on board, the way people talk about the environment, the way people look you straight in the eyes and when you ask them questions about how things are going, when you challenge them, how they um, take positive criticism well, take feedback, all those things you can tell really, really quickly. And I've been in a work environment office and I've been in a number of them and I can, it's the same thing, in the first 10, 15 minutes, you can be, even with a rugby team, you know, you can go speak to, the, say, the thirds of a rugby team and have a chat. You can sense the culture almost. So that's how it feels. Yeah. You know, and it gets back to that high performance team, you know, a couple of elements that you can sense the trust, the, the camaraderie, the uh, the common purpose that, you know, if you ask them values, they may not be able to quote the five values like, you know, verbatim, but they know their behaviours. They know what how they actually, those that, that culture turns, you know, and values is actually then there's the behaviours which are really, really clear. And that's a critical part. You can talk about culture and values. It's actually how you behave in accordance with those. Now, we can all, you know, culture, of course, eat strategy for breakfast and all those kind of quotes. But for me, it's actually how people are behaving and behaving in terms of, you know, what that common purpose, that higher purpose is. Is that, is that a matter of, of having this common purpose or higher purpose and then having a shared set of values that constantly drive the behaviors in your organization or your team? Is that, is that a big part of that? Because uh, I've been in teams, I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen teams or been in teams where the right things are being said, but the right actions are not happening and it yep. tends to create a negative or a toxic culture. Where I've been, it, whereas there are teams where, as you said, the behaviors are outstanding. Everyone's living a certain way, driving towards this higher purpose, and it's and it feels like a very good team environment and a good team culture. It, am I on the right track with that? Oh, absolutely. And I think it goes back to those five things: the high performing teams, which represents your culture. You know that that common higher purpose. You know the, the clear kind of communication between the teams, that clear role clarity, that clear trust. As I said, people knowing each other. Um, and then I think that last one I mentioned, yeah, everyone says, oh, it's just all about principles. Well, first of all, you have to have good processes in place. You know, you yeah. do your drills, you do things, you know, everyone knows verbatim, you know, in a sequential way. But then you have principles. You know, you don't need to be talking about the process. You need to be talking about the principles that you're going to apply. Um, I, I think um, you can overdo it in terms of, you know, designing culture or thinking about culture versus actually just doing it, yeah. you know, behaving, enacting it. And um, and if something doesn't feel right, then you start to think, well, that behaviour is reflective of our culture and behaviour of our higher purpose. Let's go back and have a look at it. But if actually if people are behaving well, it means your cultural settings are right. Mate, it's so interesting. I, I'm I'm conscious of your time. I've just got a couple of rapid-fire questions, mate, and um, I'll get you out of here. Uh, every podcast we ask our guests if you have any books, podcasts, documentaries that you frequently recommend to people. Can be any area of life, not just sport, not just leadership, just anything that you'd frequently recommend. Well, look, uh, for me, it's plenty more thematic. So I am very believer in this Australian style of leadership. So I'll read any Australian leader's biography whenever I can. You know, um, yeah, and I've just been reading Mawson's, you know, Mawson, and I've been reading about the discovery in Antarctica. So to understand his leadership style 
throughout that process. So that's one. Of course, there's some great uh, recent leaders. Stan McChrystal is a, an American military leader, which uh, and Colin Powell, both of them actually just recently have uh, read as well. Um, in terms of others, you know, I, I, I like adventurous leadership. So those who discovered the new world from, you know, 250 years ago, the Vasco da Gama's, the Cooks, you know, the um, Abel Tasman, the Bass States, et cetera, as well, because, you know, they like the astronauts of, you know, uh, which, you know, discovering space, you know, and it completely a blank canvas of, of, of actually having to lead humans into the uh, unknown. So, and I think for me, that's really exciting. Actually, anything that's leading humans into the unknown, whether it be surgery into the unknown, the, going to the ocean, searching for wrecks in the unknown, into space or, or discovering the new world, I think from a thematic, that's really what it inspires to me. I will read some of the leadership and high-performance team books and theories, et cetera. Um, that probably has been useful, uh, but not as inspiring or uh, probably as 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 important in my leadership and high-performance you know, team journey is actually reading about others and how they achieved it. Because especially if it's a biographer talking about the frankness of when things didn't go right too, as you said, failure has been as critical as success. Last question, mate. What advice would you give 18-year-old Lee Goddard? Yeah, well, well, first of all, life is a journey, you know, and it is a marathon. It's not a sprint, and uh, and not every day is a good day. Now, uh, they're great weeks, they're great months, etc. as well. And and uh, you know, I you know, I could give you a biography that tells about my you know, relative successes in life, but geez, I could give you a ten-page of all my failures. And there've been many, and, and the doubts, etc., as well. Um, probably three things. One, um, um, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to change any of the mistakes, errors, or those tough days, because that's what what makes you. In fact, you know, my last day as a full, you know, kind of admiral walking off a warship, even though I'm still part time. Someone asked me, "Would you, you know, like to go back to it all again with the benefit of hindsight?" I said, "I would like to do it all back again as a midshipman, but not with the benefit of hindsight. Make all the same mistakes, all the failures, all those kind of doubt periods." The second thing, looking forward in terms of leadership, um, as I look at the leaders now throughout my life and career, I realise ones that those leaders, I actually don't remember what they really achieved. I don't really think anybody really remembers what I achieved. Maybe my mum and my kids, but they remember how you achieved it. It's a really big difference, and I remember how people how how people made me feel, yeah. and how etc. The third thing is, um, you know, leadership is about giving people what they need, not what they want. And sometimes it's completely different, and you have to make some really hard calls. You know, it's trite to say it's not about being popular. You've got to be really hard. In fact, sometimes uh, when I was a captain of warship, I would say and do things which were much harder than I thought I would ever be but I had to be because you have to now and again, you've got to do it. So I remind everyone leadership, give people what they need, not what they want. Sometimes they're the same, but that is the critical, um, um, I guess, um, essence of actually achieving what you need to do as a leader. Leadership is giving people what they need, not what they want. Absolutely. Lee, it's been an honor, mate. Thank you so much for this. I've I hope I ask good questions, but I, I can tell you that I certainly learned a lot from that. And I, I know that anyone who listened to this will probably walk away with more questions, uh, which to me is the sign of a good conversation. So an honor to have you on and thank you very much, mate. Thanks, Duncan. And thanks. They're, they're great questions. And and um, it's, a, it's a great initiative and I'm looking forward to hearing more of your podcast. Cheers. Thank you, mate.